Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and we have returned to Zoom again today uh, with Sue Grimmett in the office. Hey, Sue. Hey there. Lovely to be back in the conversation. And uh, Peter Cat joins us as well. Hey, Peter. Good morning. And uh, we are so excited by today's uh, guest. This is somebody that uh, I, I remember reading about this book. It must have been almost the start of 2021, I think. I first heard that this book was coming out and thought, oh, that's a guest we're going to have to get on. Uh, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis is the Senior Minister at Middle Collegiate Church in New York, host of the Love Period podcast and author of a number of books, including her latest one, Fierce Love, A Bold Path to Ferocious Courage and Rule-Breaking Kindness That Can Heal the World. Jackie, thank you so much for joining the On The Way podcast. I'm so glad to be with you, friends. Thank you so much, Tom, Sue, Peter. Thanks. Some people might have uh, become familiar with your work in, in many, many different areas um, over the, the years. I think I first came across you doing some work with Brian McLaren, who's a previous guest of ours, not yes. too long ago as well. Um, but but this book is such a joy, such a delight to read, Fierce Love. It's a part memoir about your life and, and I guess the ways that the different ways love has held you. Can you take us into the, uh, I guess, the genesis of the book, where the idea for the book came from? Yes, I will be so happy to do that. And I'm so grateful that um, Penguin Random House uh, picked it up here. And I'm so grateful that you picked it up there. And it just makes me so happy to imagine uh, these words getting across the pond where I have great friends and uh, connections in Australia, New Zealand, and um, and uh, in um, India a little bit. So let me say, I feel like this book has been cooking inside me since I was a five-year-old kid. Wow that I grew up with these African-American parents. I'm African-American and they are too. We can't take that for granted, but they are. Who grew up in Mississippi and who kind of did the great migration uh, with so many other African-American folks in the, um, you know, as they were young, young adults. Um, They were both born in the depression. They were both did Jim Crow. And their whole aim was to raise children who were not, I'm going to say polluted with, corrupted by, wounded by white supremacy, racism. They just wanted us to be protected from that. So they went north and they went to the Air Force. And we lived in a kind of happy, well-adjusted Air Force base world where in the military, you become family with people who don't look like you. And that was great until this little girl named Lisa moved in to town and decided to inform me that I was the N-word for the first time. And I think something broke in my heart, like, wow, this is really hard. And the prayer that I prayed that night was, no matter what someone looks like, God, may they feel loved. And I believe that that was a formative story for my ministry and my, the way I've lived my life. And this, and this book is every sermon y'all a priest <laughs> I've ever preached. That's about love, about healing, about forgiveness, about grace, about hope, about making family. And, to, and, and, and it is my prayer still that what is good about religion will be rescued by love. That what is you know, healing about religion will be resuscitated by love. And that the way sometimes our faiths have become weapons to hurt each other, 
that will recover from that with love. Yeah, it's 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 such a beautiful, uplifting book. There's so many threads I, I can't wait to to explore in the the conversation ahead. Um, maybe to start with, you use the idea of Ubuntu throughout the book. It's sort of a grounding framework yeah. um, that you pick up a lot of the time. I know that's something that many people will have come across in in one form or another. But could you just let us know uh, a little bit about um, how it's become so central to, to your thinking and, and what it means to you? Yeah, I, you know, I first found Ubuntu in one of those leadership books. I, my, I think it was the fifth principle <laughs> that where you all first might have seen it too, right? <laughs> but I was working on a dissertation um, in my PhD program on like how leaders do multi-ethnic churches. So I did a big leadership uh, survey and I was like, what is this about Ubuntu? What is that? Salbonus and Kona, what does that mean? especially because I couldn't click. So I was curious about it and I followed it down a rabbit hole and got to Mandela and um, Bishop Tutu and this and this sense that this Zulu philosophy, let's say, uh, I feel like it predates in some ways some of our religions mm. in that we are all African, right? The, when you go to South Africa and you get to the cradle of civilization and you are just mystified to think that humankind or, or originates there. And then this expression, this Zulu philosophy originates there. I kind of imagine when we walked out of caves into the light, we said, well, probably we need to, who's going to make the fire and who's going to cook the fish and who's going to raise the kids. And we needed a community uh, to do it. So this Ubuntu idea friends is literally uh, numuntu, ngamuntu, ngabantu. This is what it means. A human is a human through the humans in a way that there isn't even kind of like a single word for human. It's we're humans in relationship to each other. And the greeting, Salbona, is I see you. And the response is Sakona, which means I exist. So literally you're saying, because I am seen by you, recognized by you, known by you i am a, a person and and vice versa wow so my humanity is inextricably connected to my friends way over there uh, in australia mm. that if there are children that are hungry in your family i feel like my stomach should growl and if your elders need you know health care i feel like that should send me to the UN to global policies about wellness. And if we could rewire our thinking that we are inextricably connected one to the other, that I think is the truest neighbor love of all. And then we'll be keeping covenant with Rabbi Jesus. Yeah, that's beautiful. That that sense of interconnectedness at the core of all things. You, you get to this later in the book, but how religion has often, you know, as we all all know and all too well, has often been used to do the opposite of that, to divide people yet again. Um, yeah. So how long did it take you to incorporate this Ubuntu idea into what I know growing up for you as a, a much more probably uh, conservative Christian faith? Yeah, forever. <laughs> I mean, a lifetime, you know, you know, I, I didn't know I was evangelical. That's an interesting word that has emerged in my life in relationship to my friends who say they're evangelical, right? Like, I, I, I don't know what that meant, actually. Does it mean tell the good news? I think so. But 
there were lots of um, conservative rule keeping in my family and what girls do and what boys do and, you know, gender roles and uh, what we don't do because we're Christians. And also, by the way, the only way and the only truth and the only life, you know, is Jesus. I definitely grew up with that and um, had a couple of experiences of bumping into my own faith as a, a self-harming, right? I, I have a car accident and I, I, mean, I have this car accident, y'all, and I almost die. And I spend time thinking, well, did God do that? Because I was bad. Uh, what kind of God was that that would flip my car? Yeah. Right? So I kind of had to break up with that God for a little while. Like, that's not what's happening here. That's not healthy. And, it, and to come out on the other side in seminary, really, to be honest with you, looking for the God that I hoped I'd find and feeling like I found, to quote Ndizaki Shange, a God in myself and loved her fiercely, or like to find really the simplest uh, articulation of God that was the first time I took communion or Eucharist. And my mom said this, you know, this bread means God will always love you. And this cup means God will never leave you. And, and so that's what it is. This God the psalmist claims you, you know, can't go anywhere and run away from God. Always God's going to find you, come get you. This feeling of the God of Jesus, who Jesus would call daddy, who's so intimate, who loves us so much. And why isn't that the focus of our faith? I found that finally. Mm. And Ubuntu gets at it, but also straight up neighbor love, mm. neighbor love. And People stop calling me. This is the day we're having. Our fire was a year ago this weekend. Uh, when your anniversary is coming in, everything is rolling really fast today. So yeah, I will not answer that question right now. <laughs> That's so. not a problem at all. I, I, uh, we were going to get to the, the two fires of your life that you do write about in the book a little bit later on. Yeah. And, um, and the role they both played, one of them being at Middle Church last year, which we'll talk about. Uh, shortly, I just want to start though, um, I guess by where, where you start in the book, which is talking about self-love and how all love starts with a love of self. I know this, uh, it's something we've explored on the podcast before, um, when Peter yeah. Katz spoken about the implicit commandment that exists within love yes. your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm just curious, uh, that the starting the book with self-love, it is still mm -hmm. a, a bit of a foreign idea, I think to probably many people of faith that the first calling is to, to have a love for yourself. Um, is, uh, you, you said the, the Ubuntu idea, connecting that took forever. Did that idea of self-love tying in with faith take a similar amount of time? Yeah, it did. And I think those ideas are connected. I would love to hear Peter's more talk on the implicit command. I think we, I think we, like, I think it's so actually explicit in a way, right? It, it is, you know, what is the most important thing to do? <laughs> Rich young ruler or scribe. Love God with everything. Jesus, Jesus cribbing on Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? Being a good rabbi, being a good priest, putting these texts together, preaching a good sermon about it. And then the second is unto it. It's the same. So Jesus is putting 
love neighbor, love self on par with love God. Hmm. But that means Jesus is putting love self on par with love God. Hmm. That's the transitive property of equality, y'all, right? Yeah. Go back to our fifth grade math. And like, wow, what? We're supposed to love our neighbor the way we love God. And we're supposed to love ourselves the way we love our neighbor, which is to say we're supposed to love ourselves the way we love God. And in fact, that those two clauses in the Greek are, are connected by the word os, which is an equal sign. What happened? Why didn't we say that to each other in Sunday school? Why didn't we tell little Bobby? I'm a, there's always Uncle Bob or little Bobby, you know, <laughs> my, my little person. Why didn't we tell Antoinette? Um, the way you're going to know how to love your God is to love the creature God created, yeah. which is you. And it's almost blasphemous not to love the creature mm. that God created. What a revolution we'd have. Mm. Yeah, Tutu would, say, Tutu would say it is blasphemous not to love the creature that... Yeah. Um, my, my argument has always been the problem with love your neighbor as yourself is that too many of us do exactly that. Yes, we, we don't exactly love ourselves, right. therefore we, we batter everyone else to death in a, in a, because we think we're horrible, we impose that horribleness on everyone else. And so I, I love your unpacking of that idea that the, the Greek does make them all parallels. And so you... Know, you the, the commandment, I, I always call it the implicit commandment, but it actually comes out as really explicit that if you if you don't love yourself, you're not going to love your neighbour. And in a sense, you've got Buckley's of actually discovering what it is to love God because you'll probably weaponize God in the process, seeing as you've beaten yourself up, your neighbour up. You may as well have a God that's going to join you in the, uh, the melee. Yeah. I, I think that is so profoundly absolutely in our face true and we miss it so much because there's all those other messages i'm just to say to suzanne is it sue right to say to sue like especially as women not just women but especially as women there's no message about loving yourself as being a good girl no. the good girl sacrifices the, the boys are watching football and the girl girls washing the dishes and the woman is making the turkey and then the woman is doing the babies. And there's just no message that says, let's start with love yourself as a way, as a faithful way, right? Yeah. To honor God. Yeah, yeah, yeah And so it's really, yeah, um, right? the sacrifice piece is quite gendered, um, I think yeah. has a particular gendered flavor for little girls growing up hearing the be a good girl message um and it's just give and give and give some more until it hurts and and if it's not hurting enough you're not giving enough so you've got to give some more and that's that's very much um the christian overlay that that we've received that gets in the way of loving yourself absolutely and and then to, to peter's point then you do have a wounded bunch of folks running the world mm. now because I would say as a psychologist, because the container that is the world can be tough already in which to love yourself, right? Like this, the container's not good enough, as mm -hmm. Donald Winnicott would say. It's not good enough when people are broke and poor and hurting and can't get across the, you know, can't get to safety, living in violence, living in shame, you know, all the things that we work to eradicate that just can 
impinge little people and vulnerable people and older people, like then now you've got just a wounded humanity Mm. running the world. Angry people who don't love themselves running the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, right? Oh my gosh, (laughs) it's a wonder we can eat breakfast in the morning. So how do we, how can we rewire this that we would teach as faithfulness Let's raise our children to honor the 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 one the Psalm one thirty nine awesomely wonderfully made creature, and then and then be curious. Last night, guys, I did this Bible study on the on the first part of the book, and fifty two people were in the room, and it was a Zoom room, and so we couldn't really talk, but people were in the chat, vulnerable. I'm saying to them, "Do you love yourself? Like, do you like look in the square?" tell yourself what's good about yourself and people started writing some i don't feel that today but some people i'm strong or i'm vulnerable or i'm honest or i'm kind i'm like good now what about the part of you that you just really can't stand can you give it a little love can you like and there i'm i'm selfish but i but i can receive you like if we could love the otherness in ourselves mm. if we could find a way to forgive the foreign, the alien, the broken, wounded, yucky part of ourself, we could turn that kind of curiosity and grace, I think, to the neighbor. Mm. Yeah, magic. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it, it, it reminds me of a conversation that I had uh, not too long ago, maybe a year or two ago with, with somebody who was, um, a brilliant, brilliant, uh, had a brilliant heart for social justice, but kept talking about how they weren't interested in, um, you know, therapy. They weren't interested in doing their own story or anything like that, because they said there's so much to be done in the world of who I am and, and, you know, making sense of my life and making peace with my demons. That's not that important. I should be going and feeding someone who needs food. And I, yeah. I could never, I couldn't quite articulate what, what it was that I was struggling with in the approach, but I suppose yeah. this is it at a core level, which is that if you don't start there, if you don't start with a really solid foundation of love for yourself and find a way to do that, it's all going to come undone at some stage down the track, isn't it? You know, I think so, right, Dom? I mean, I, I, I can feel as I'm speaking, I want to be, you know, gentle about it because it is like a totally different kind of spiritual practice for so many of us Mm. especially those of us who do ministry and especially those of us who do justice work you kind of that that person's sentiment is probably pretty not unusual Yeah, yeah but but i still think it's true that at base the um the implicit explicit command to love neighbor has to be like there's the reason jesus pull there's a reason it's in scripture and there's a reason rabbi jesus pulls it out of the hebrew scripture to highlight it for us there's something about it that is true is what i think the the, the scripture is script for life and there's something about it that's true and in the kind of developmental space the the psychological developmental space where where there's a hole where there's been um impingement Mm. where there's been neglect we know that we can develop a false self that's what winnicott calls it or young might call it a persona 
but there's a gap between what's authentic and what's true. And in that space, I think we could say, you know, a, a trans child who can't be honest wants to kill the false self. Mm. So that I think is a place where suicidal thoughts come mm. or medicate the false self can be a place where addiction develops or workaholism, that's my thing. But like, there's fragility, there's not enough ego strength, there's tenderness that isn't the kind we are trying to foster. There's Then there's brittleness, then there's ready anger, and then there's bravado, right? And then there's, yeah. right? And then yeah. it looks like courage, but actually it's just rage. So I think that's the soup in which those kinds of things grow mm. is a lack of self-love. Yeah. And if, if it, it will shape the way people do advocacy because uh, yeah. there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, advocacy that's driven by a form of rage and anger and a self-loathing <laughs> means that um, the, the people who you're trying to transform are treated in a way that we will ensure that they're never transformed. I remember years ago speaking at a rally that, um, that you know, we, were, we were trying to change the, the government's idea on a particular issue was um, marriage equality. And most of the speakers were demonizing the people who they were hoping to influence. And I, you know, I remember saying to one of the speakers, when was the last time that you managed to change someone's mind by telling them to stick their head up their sort of orifice? <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah, um, and even though we are angry, we are, we, we, we are angry and we are right to be angry. Um, we are also in the business of transformation and persuasion and finding, yeah. out, how, finding how to walk, walk that really difficult path is a real challenge because this is a difficult path because you don't want to be so um, nice that people just go, oh, you know, they can dismiss you and sideline you. But at the same time, you do actually want to persuade people because the only way, it's either, it's either anarchy and revolution or the art of persuasion, getting people to come on board. And so yes. um, it's, a, it's a much yes. more difficult path and you have to do the inner work and... And then some people in the advocacy sector become your enemies as well because you're not raging enough. It's a, it's, yeah. it's a really complex life. But It really is a complex life. <laughs> it I, really I, is. That it does circle back to what we were saying at the start about Ubuntu, though, because the, yeah. you know, the, the, the danger with when we do, um, some people, when we talk self-love, some people will think, you know, those terrible self-esteem kind of exercises that went through a phase in education but stick around the mirror that kind of thing yeah, yeah. that that's right and and right. um you know the the 10 things i love about me and um the you know there was this very inward looking that was completely divorced from others and we've started out talking about the the sense of ubuntu being i see you and i exist you know that that my existence is caught up and I can only be seen in the company in relationship with others, which is the exact opposite, of course, of the Descartes, I think, therefore I am, you know, it's yes. the complete and yet 
I think sometimes our ideas about self-esteem get caught up with the more Descartes idea of I've got to produce it myself. Whereas mm -hmm. when we're working in these contested spaces where we are, this is why Jesus saying love your enemies is so powerful mm -hmm. because it's part of that recognizing that if you're working in a justice space and you are trying to advocate and you're trying to communicate your vision for a better world. And there's people who seem so hateful towards what you're saying. We've still got to hold the fact that they are caught up in my humanity as well and that I am part with them. And somehow loving your enemies is going to be the only way forward. And straight and conversely, as we do that, that sense of self-love, because we don't judge ourselves, we don't judge others. It's all caught up in the one picture. And I think it, that's, that's the way of approaching, I see you, I exist, um, has got to be held at the same time. Yeah. I think that's, that's really so right, Sue. And again, back to complex, and even maybe it can feel to people <clears throat> circuitous, but I think it's actually, is it a deepening spiral or is it a elevating spiral? But I think it is a, it is a kind of um, movement around the, you know, if I can find a way to love me, I can find a way to love you and the part of you that is the strangest part of you. Mm -hmm. And I can find the way to love the strangest part of myself. Mm -hmm. And together we can find another couple of people mm -hmm. to collude with, you know, I mean, there is a kind of organic mm -hmm. circle, uh, perichoresis, I don't know, <laughs> something, right? That is like, just like the Trinity yeah. is also maybe me and you and and the parts of us that don't feel like us would be the third piece or something and the way we get to be a community of, of lovers is to dance guys i write in my book and i don't want to get ahead of where you're at but i write in my book about my dad mm. who is like the sweetest 87 year old black man right who was not always the sweetest 87 year old. <laughs> he was feisty and had temper and oh, all the things. And today, you know, so the book comes out on November, uh, it came out on November 11th, I think there. His birthday was November one. And so I'm in Chicago for his birthday and the book is about to come out. And I did a book talk and I give him a book and I read part of the books. And in the book talk, I say, now listen, y'all, I tell some bumpy stories about my dad in this book. And my brother was listening and he said, oh, bumpy, that's <laughs> such a fascinating euphemism for what you're trying to say, right? But I did tell some bumpy stories about my dad and me to illustrate how we can get better. And he read the book cover to cover. This is my fourth book. He's not read anything else ever. Hmm. He said, I read this book cover to cover and I'm so proud of you. I, I, I love you so much. And I'm so proud of you. He said, you speak from your heart. I, and you, it's also smart, but, and you tell on us, but I can feel you're telling on us so other people can get it and can do better. And I'm like, who are you? You know, I don't know what I expected. But it was more than I could ever have asked or imagined that my dad would get that I'm 
talking about our dance in a way to help other people believe that reconciliation and healing and joy and goodness can flourish even in the tight bumpy spaces yeah it's it's a beautiful part of the book where you write about a really difficult conversation you had with your dad um you know when when the relationship had reached a really frayed point and how actually it was the stimulus of the i guess the friendship you have now with him and there's this beautiful line i can't remember it word for word but it's something you write something like not everything that is confronted will be healed but nothing can be healed unless it is confronted um that's right and 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 that stuck with me so much because i can imagine you know there'd be people in family situations friendship dynamics work dynamics um you know, I, I think probably everyone is carrying things that they think, oh, I don't know how to bring it up. How do I address that? I'll just leave that there for the minute. But you really talk about this this fierce love revolution um, sort of requires us to find spaces and, and, and areas where we can say these things, where we can confront these things in the hope that they may heal them. It, it's, it's absolutely stunning. And I can imagine maybe one of the hardest things you've ever gone through, but the most rewarding. Yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm cribbing on James Baldwin when I do that. It, nothing can be, you know, changed unless we face it. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of wisdom that came to me that, you know, in our, in our evangelical house, good girls and good boys also don't talk back to their parents ever. And I'm not saying children, y'all should go back and talk back to your parents, but I really came to understand that honoring my parents wasn't about being silent, that honoring my old black, beautiful parents Mm. who really became my buds was to find a way to say that hurts or when that happened it, or I can't do this or, you know, and sometimes we're really have great eye statements and can tell hard things beautifully. And sometimes we can't. And we have to apologize for how loud we were, but to hold on to the truths between us that are, you know, the heartbreak, the hurt, the wounding, and not say it is to put a barrier between us, a prophylactic between us, a boundary between us. Like there's no intimacy and there's no truth. There's no peace. There's no reconciliation without truth. We can look at our South African friends and know that that is true. And inside our families, you got to pick your time. You got to pick your day. Sometimes today, my husband, my husband is walking with me through all these crazy fire shenanigans. And he's a United Methodist minister and he's my freak therapist, lots of days. And today I <laughs> said something like, I, I, I just need to tell you what I'm thinking right now. And I said it kind of just like that. Like, I just need to tell you what I'm thinking right now. And he's like, oh, okay. And I, and I told him, like, I'm just thinking this is the decision I need to make. And when I said it, I watched his face. And I was like, oh my God, he is so tired of talking about this right now. But I couldn't stop myself soon enough. <laughs> so I, I saw it. I saw the fleeting look of like, if you say one more word about the fire, I might have to jump off a bridge. But I didn't stop myself soon enough. And so instead I got in my feelings and I went, so what you're saying is (laughs) you can't help me right now, (laughs) which was so lovely. (laughs) I'm not saying that, which was really good. 
you know? Mm. And then because he said, I'm not saying that, like we could just slow it down. And, and I said, so, I said, so let's do it again. Let's do it again. Mm. I said, I am so sad and I'm so scared. And I just need you to hear me. Mm. And he said, I can do that. But he said, I'm sad and I'm scared. And I was like, oh my God, who, who didn't think that he was grieving, right? Mm -hmm. So we just slowed it down and we didn't lie. It hurt that he couldn't do me right then. Mm. But when we slowed it down, we could do, look at dude. <laughs> and, 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 you know, we did that and he listened. And then later before I went to a meeting, I just said, today you were like the shiniest husband. Not because you did it right, but because we slowed it down and we did it better. And that's what we did. Because we told the truth to each other. And then yeah. he's like, I'm so, I'm so grieving too. And I said, don't let me forget that, you know? Gosh, and it's so easy, you know, it's so easy to go to bed at the end of the day, um, having not reached that point with friends, family, partners, whatever. It's so easy to go to bed at the end of the day going, oh, I just... Yeah. I could have said something. I could have slowed it down and actually got to the core of this thing. But it's almost like there's a part of us that believes the more loving thing to do generally is to not bring things up. The more loving thing to do is just, you know, grin yeah. and bear it and move on. But what I loved that came all through your your book is the idea that actually that isn't the loving thing to do. As much as that keeps the peace in the moment, um, long term, that is, it is not a loving thing to do to let things fester. It is not a loving thing to do to your closest neighbor, which is your family, mm. nor is it a loving thing to do to you. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. then you are having ajita and stomach aches and yeah. wrestling it with it all night as opposed to just saying it, right? Yeah. I love the way, though, just then what the, the slow it down image is a beautiful thing because you're in amongst, yes, we're confronted, yes, you're saying it, yes, you know we need to air some of these things, but you're tuning in and watching the other person. You're tuning right. in, attending to where they are at and what might be could be happening for them. And so we slow it down and we are lovingly attentive and gentle with one another as we allow right. these truths to surface. That's right, too, because you don't have to kill somebody. I mean, to tell your truth. And I, I kind of thought, and sometimes we want to, haha, but I thought, I thought like this other place, Dom, where we might say to ourselves, this is the loving thing to do. But actually, sometimes we feel so good about yes. I was that mad and I didn't say anything. Do you know what I mean? Like we get an A plus. <laughs> do you know? Like we get an A plus for like, I was furious, but I kept it together. Is that an A plus behavior, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, it, I just think that's such a powerful image because the amount of um, friendship groups I've been in over the journey, you know, and even back in high school thinking, you know, back there or, or recently in family situations where you find yourself in a room and you know that there is so much that is unsaid in this space, in, in this circle of people. Yeah. And um, I can't remember where this quote comes from, but if you the, the idea that if you gather a group of people and you look at what's not allowed to be said, that's always where the interesting stuff is. Um, yeah. but, right. but so many of us have just papered over the cracks in, in family and friendships just to, just to keep the peace and move on. But the idea, I mean, you, you spoke about having these challenges with your dad for a long time. I mean, the first one that you write about is an argument you had with him when you were, uh, I think, in your late teens, a really visceral yeah. one. And then you're talking about this other one that happened, um, you know, many, many years down the track. 
this was this was in the air. This was in the water for you for a long time. This thing with your dad, yes. and then yeah. it seems like from this one conversation you write about, where you finally found a way to name it and confront it, there was this enormous liberation. An enormous liberation, and and I would say probably, in an, in, if I'm honest, it was, you know, both of those, and probably a couple smaller things where you, it takes sometimes it takes time to to get it straight between us, you know? Mm. So I think when I was younger and I was, did, I don't know that I should have behaved exactly that way that day, but it had a pent up. Why am I, why can't we just talk? That's what it was, right? Like, why can't, why can't children speak to parents? Why? I'm 18. I'm in college. I got stuff to say, you know, kind of thing. So it was frustrating and it churned. And then, you know, you kind of tamp it back down and the the, the family way to be a good Christian daddy's an elder in the church. And like the way to be good is to shut up. Um, I, you know, I'm not proud of that, but I was like, you got to make me shut up, which was like my absolute truest self rising up to say, I can't bear mm. to not be honest anymore. And, and to get to be 40 something and to feel like still I'm expected not to be a grown up honest person was unbearable and that's what i mean by like the false self just won't do it anymore uh which for me i had psychological resources you know i'm a theologian i got therapy enough to do my own practice you know i've got i've done my things my work but so many people don't have the resources and then you'll just sit on it sit on it and then there'll be a violent thing in the house we know how many domestic violence things happen because people have sat on things and there's a gun around or a knife around or, you know, they just punch each other out. That's not what we want. So I do think that this is a this is revolutionary to teach each other in classrooms, in church school, in sermons that actually love means telling the truth, which is why Jesus said the truth will set us free. Wow, look at that Jesus. Mm. Yeah. It's such a, I guess people are scared of thinking, you know, oh, but what if they can't handle the truth? And then, you know, there's a split you in the can't relationship. can't handle the truth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. But, right. but I think that is the fear and, and it causes a split. Yeah, but, but I suppose when you look at Jesus, you don't, you don't often see, you know, it's not written that he was walking, walking home one night with the disciples saying, oh, I should have said it. I regret that I didn't say it. Sorry guys. There is a sense of, um, of knowing that, that love demands it of us. And it's interesting actually, because you, there's some beautiful words that you share in the book that a therapist gave you in the middle of um, one of the, the big challenges of your life, which is that the, the place where it hurts the most is where the birth is happening. Like there's quite a physical image that you, you, that the therapist <laughs> use of this, but that the, it literally where the, in childbirth, where the pain is at its most intense is where the birth is taking place. It's where the birth is. Yeah. That's right. So my, 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 my published, my publicist, my publisher was so funny about that. <laughs> we were reading that part of the book, Peter, and she, you know, that's really, it made me giggle, but do we need that? We <laughs> absolutely need that. Yeah, yeah. We absolutely need that because it is true. Uh, I actually have not, um, I've actually have not given birth to kids. My body couldn't make babies when I was young enough to do it. But my friends all say this is splitting wide open pain mm. and then life wow like wow you know and they say it's a lie that you forget it um 
Did, did you have give birth I've got three kids and I think that the birthing metaphor um, thankfully is powerful seems to be powerful for men and women for people who've had children for people who haven't um, because right. we get there's a deep part of ourselves that gets that in that incredible pain the fact that you have to with birth you have to stay in the pain for a while and you can't fast forward it fast track it you know, to your own pace and just let's get this over and done with, you know, it has to take the time it takes. Um, but it is also the most creative thing mm -hmm. you can you can do. And so in this creative force of pain and waiting and bearing the discomfort of those in-between phases when things aren't quite ready yet, you know, I think that's a, it's a brilliant image. And to think that in our, I think it should give people hope, but I know it gives me hope to think that there's in that really painful um, experiences them if we think of the most painful experiences of our life that there there can be birthing or waiting to birth um, something new that you may not anticipate in its fullness yeah, yeah I think that's right yeah. I think one of the great blessings of our culture in recent decades has been that men have been allowed into the birthing suite yeah and uh, I, I know the birth of my three kids I actually I actually said at a meeting a couple of weeks ago that I that I um, said that I had given birth and um, some people told me that I couldn't, but I actually hold that I have, you know, because being part of that experience, I, you know, I, the, the pain is different and the experience is different, but um, it was one it, it was truly transforming experience in my life. I wouldn't lean in too hard on that. No, no, no. No, and, and, no, and, I, and I understand, I understand the, the pushback, but um, those who push back are not understanding what the experience did to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There is a, that seems fair to me. It is, it is possible to be transformed by vicarious. Yeah, yeah. Pain. And, you know, if you love someone that deeply, um, their pain becomes your pain. And uh, I think that's the bit that gets missed in what love looks like is that, uh you can take on other people's pain in in a way that it is yours and that's what you know that's what compassion you know jesus talks about uh having compassion and splagnizomai means to be moved to the guts yeah have your guts wrenched so the pain does actually cause pain for you so yeah. That's one of my favorite Greek words. Yeah. I too. It's my favorite it's Greek like, word. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like, whatever. That's so it just when you say it, it sounds like it's what it is, right? Mm. I I I do think that there is um, you know, I'm a womanist theologian, so I, I sometimes struggle with I've I've struggled with atonement theories that felt like you know, we have to suffer to get too well type of thing. I, I struggle with that. But at the same time, absolutely, the suffering, how does Paul say it? Who did not have babies either, but maybe Peter, maybe he was in a room with somebody. <laughs> I don't know. But he's like, I, I believe that the sufferings of this present time right, are not worth comparing with the glory that's about to be revealed to us. I had Christian Becker for Romans and so in Paul's studies, like, oh, he used to make me like, cry talking about that. Mm. 
where all of creation is groaning like a woman in childbirth, waiting for the children of God to be revealed. Oh my God, that makes me cry today to think that the creation is saying, you know, breathe push to, to our circumstances. Yeah. Wanting to see us show ourselves, the children of God to show themselves. And we, and, and so we are honed in the, we find in the fire, honed in the, I don't know what metaphors to use right there, but mm. I absolutely pain has birthed new things in me, in you, in us. Yeah. And, and even the idea that, that it's not really possible to have birth, to have a new birth without pain. It's, it's a bizarre thing. I think I heard Richard Raw talking once about it and, and he said something along the lines of, um, that would, that will be his first question to God will be, I can, I can very much see that the universe is this way. I'm just curious why <laughs> could we not have why, laughed why ourselves we... into growth? <laughs> yeah. Right. And I bet the women are all like, what, what, what does that have to happen? And yeah. stop telling those stories about how the birth of pain birth was a punishment too. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's a whole nother thing for another time. Um, well, there's actually something I'd like to to just cover off as we um, move towards the end of the conversation, Jackie. Your, your seminary professor gave you a definition of love that you use in the book, and uh, it might be my all-time favorite definition of love. It's almost uh, tattoo-worthy, I think, this particular definition. Um, would you be happy to, to share that with us? I, I will. It was, um, it was Jim Loader, James E. Loader, who wrote the book, The Transforming Moment. Lots of people know that book. But he, he said that love is the non-possessive delight in the particularity of the other. Mm. Now, he was a like me, a psychologist of religion kind of person. So you can hear in that the way therapists talk about a an unconditional regard, you know, Carl Rogers and others, but non-possessive delight in the particularity of the other. And I for the longest time, y'all, I I was like. I thought that was Diogenes Allen who said that, right? So I would be trying to attribute it to Diogenes Allen, and then I'd look it up, and then it would be Jackie Lewis said. <laughs> I was quoting Diogenes Allen, but I literally called an old friend and I said, "Who said that?" And they were like, "It was Jim Loader." And then I looked up the book, and there it was. And Jim was a this lovely man who came to faith kind of late in life, and one of the stories he tells is. Uh, would tell us is of how his little petite wife, his car fell on him when he was changing the tire. And his teeny tiny petite wife picked up the car, right? And saved his life. And that just changed his whole world, that, that kind of love. Mm. So non-possessive delight in the unique particularity of the other. I think um, I think that definition should be taught in schools, to be honest. It's just the because we have this idea of um, love that is quite possessive, this idea of love that that is intrinsically caught up with having the other, you know, in some ways yes. um, yep. owning or, or having a stake in the other, whereas the idea of a non-possessive delight, it just it leaves enough air for the, you know, enough room for air to flow through. It leaves some... I don't know. It, it takes away the anxiety. It takes away the the clinging. It takes all these things away that that can harm love. So, 
I just think it's such a beautiful definition. Right. And Jackie, I think that's one thing your book does. I, I've always felt that we've got this real dearth of, of um, descriptors of love, of, of, re- of what yes, love would yeah. look like. And we have Hollywood, which doesn't help us most of the time. We've got this, yeah. this sort of uh, an awful lot. If you actually take that definition of non-possessive love uh, or non-possessive delight and put it onto a lot of the romantic movies mm. you'll actually go gosh that doesn't fit does it that we, it doesn't really fit does it yeah teaching right. people yeah. um possession ownership control as if it's some kind of romantic um has a romantic quality sometimes in some yeah. of those, those That's right. yeah and yet so we need to find ways to paint a picture of what love really looks like for people because otherwise they have trouble imagining it and they have trouble seeing when it's not like that which is where domestic violence can flourish because people actually don't know one of the the saddest things I heard mm-hmm. recently is um, from someone who's working in um, domestic violence sector in in Brisbane here and was and they produced a document for the churches and they actually had to have a diagram of what throttling looked like mm-hmm. and saying and describing what mm-hmm. it would feel like that you might see bruises here it might happen just in other conversations and, that, and she said we have to actually describe it because otherwise people don't recognise that it's a problem they know that no, that's a problem but they didn't know that that sort of throttling um, is actually part of a, a, a violent behaviour and abusive. Yeah. Um, and in the same way, I think we've painted pictures of love that are mm. wrong, distorted, mm-hmm. all about possession and control. And so people cannot see what love's meant to look like and they can't see when they have a problem that needs to be called out. And until you start to spell those things out, then then they can see. We have to be yeah. very achingly specific. Mm. So we need to be achingly specific also about the good stuff about you know this non-possessive delight how if we got that message out there you know maybe then we people and relationships might have more of a chance of um, recognizing love when they find it yeah that's beautiful sue think about all the teenagers in our youth groups who need to know what that looks like yeah and and so many victims of domestic abuse go back because the perpetrator says i love you yeah, yeah. If you had if you had a really good, robust understanding of what love looked like, you'd be able to first yeah. test the claim. Yeah, yeah. Um, you'd walk away from that. Yeah, you walk away from that and say, well, you know, you make that claim, but really what you were saying is you want to keep controlling me. You want to devour me. You want to own me. You want to devour yeah. me. That's exactly right. Yeah. And um, yeah. actually, if against this yardstick, that doesn't look like love to me. So you know, thank you very much. And so bye. Yeah. yeah. Dick yeah. Allen did. Diogenes Allen did say this, that the fear that we have about love is of being abandoned or being absorbed. And I think that's right. I mean, that's how I got him mixed up in this loader quote, but like we do both, we want to be seen, known and loved, but we don't want to be devoured. And we also don't want to be abandoned. And so sometimes we'll get in the violent, dangerous relationship so we don't get abandoned, right? And we'll stay there and we'll come back to it. and maybe because we don't want to be absorbed, we will hide ourselves and not be honest. So that I think there's danger in that. But anyway, I'm glad you love that definition. I do too. Mm, yeah, I too. try to I try to read my husband like a book is what I say. Like instead of thinking I need to fix him, mm. it's like what is he like in this moment, and just discover him, yeah. and not need to change him. Yeah, no, 
that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. It, the, the whole book is sort of radiates this um this this beautiful definition of love all the way through it, Jackie. And there's so many things I wanted to get to. We won't have the time for such as your story of the Good Canadian, which is um just a beautiful <laughs> story. People have to get the book to read the story of the Good Canadian. Get the your, book. Your retelling of the Good Samaritan story. Um, <laughs> and I also want to say while we do have you on as well, that something that has been profound in my life of your work has been on on Middle Church's website. I'm certainly uh, it, it, when I'm when I if I ever get to New York again, Middle Church is going to be on there to visit for sure. Um, but you, you have a what we believe section, which so many churches do. Most churches have a what we believe section, and many people who have looked around at different churches at times, like me, might have have gone to these what we believe sections and seen some horrific things over the years. And I mean, it saves you a Sunday visit when you read um, certain things in a what we believe section. I'll say that much, but I think your what we believe section (laughs) on Middle Church's (laughs) website is just the most beautiful um, statement of faith that I've ever heard. I have it here. If you don't mind me uh, reading it out. That would be, I'd love that. So you, you write on Middle Church's website in the what we believe section. We believe in the power of love period. Through love, we are each created in God's image and filled with the divine spark. No matter whom we love, no matter how we look, no matter where we are in our journey, God's imprint is in every person of every race, ethnicity, every gender, and every sexual orientation. We believe God speaks many languages and is calling us on many paths to peace. Shalom. We believe that love put on flesh, brown, poor, Jewish baby flesh, and came to live among us. We believe God lives among us still, We are the living body of Christ. We are the hands, feet, and heartbeat of God. We believe the Spirit of God calls us to freedom, and we are not free until all of us are free. I remember the first time I read that and thought, gosh, could I commute to New York for church? (laughs) Absolutely. Middlechurch.org, 1145 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the the interweb. Yeah, well, there we go. I should jump on through an online service. I didn't think about that. But it, it's such yeah. a beautiful, I mean, there's nothing in there that's trying to coerce, control, manipulate, push people into being something. It's just, it's just the good news, isn't it? Dumb, it is the good news. It is the non-possessive, non-coercive, non-proselytizing. Mm-hmm. I, I am evangelical in that sense, that this free gift of God that is absolutely grace love poured out just for the i don't know just stand next to it and it'll pour out on you yeah yeah that's it if it's that we will heal the world yes before before the creeds before the jump through hoops before the denominations before the anything just love period yeah yeah, and you, you, I think it might be one of the last lines of the book. You say something along the lines of the fierce love movement needs each of us because only you are standing where you are standing. Only you are seeing what you are seeing. Only you are positioned where you are positioned and you are there for a reason, um, yep. which is such a beautiful, <laughs> empowering idea. This isn't about you know needing to go and join a civil rights movement in a different country in the part of the world. This is about you are only you are exactly where you are and seeing exactly what you are seeing and believing that you are there for a reason. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful way to frame it. And just do love. So sometimes I make a benediction that makes my people laugh, but I'll say our job is to stand where we're standing, be where we're being, and then go make love everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's beautiful. 
That's all. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah. What a beautiful way to wrap up the conversation. The book is Fierce Love, A Bold Path to Ferocious Courage and Rule-Breaking Kindness That Can Heal the World. Jackie Lewis is the author. Jackie, thank you so much for making time for us today. It's such a gift. It is such a pleasure to talk with you all. It makes me feel like I did something okay, something right, and that you have engaged it with me as a beautiful gift as well. Thank you very much.